electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Jeff Mills, and Brian Kelly. We start off with a major sell-off rocking Wall Street. All three major averages finishing the day deep in the red. The tech trade taking the brunt of this pain. The Nasdaq plunging more than 3.5% for its biggest loss since October. And the selling, it was relentless. Every S&P sector finishing the day decidedly lower. At the center of the sell-off, a rate shock. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note briefly hitting 1.55%, its highest level since last February. So, in this new world of meme investing, does this meme sum up today's sell-off on Wall Street? Guy. Well, you're assuming that I can see that meme email, and as you well, know, I, I have no return. You. But I we was, sent it to you. I, I was smart. I was going to say you sent it to me, so I'm familiar with the meme, as you say, and it's a the tail wagging the dog as it is, or in this case, the tail being the bond market wagging the stonks. Is that what the, the cool kids call it? And I think that's absolutely what's going on. But it's not like we're talking about this in a vacuum. This is something we've been concerned about literally for months. Now, those, those um, concerns have been uh, misguided until the last couple of days, and now I think it's coming to fruition. I've thought for a long time one and a half was sort of the line in the sand, and that's where we got today. And I think the market's realizing that, you know what, Yields going higher is a tailwind until they're not. And I think we've reached that till they're not point. Yeah. Jeff Mills, did you think one and a half was sort of the line in the sand for stocks? We got here. We got here real quick. I mean, think we we started the year not even above one percent. Yeah, I honestly had no idea exactly what the line in the sand was going to be. And I don't know that this is necessarily it. I mean, the 10-year averaged, I think, 240 or so in the 10 years prior to COVID. So I thought it was probably some level below that, but I didn't know exactly where. And we we were living in this perfect world for a while where rates stayed very low and vaccines were ramping up and, and everyone was just generally feeling good about the reopening of the economy. I think now that rates are starting to creep up, all of a sudden there's a risk. But I actually think it, it's the other way around where rates are actually playing catch up to what's happening in the economy and what's been happening in the stock market. And you see it kind of happen in a little bit of a waterfall where, you know, you had everything trailing except for large cap, mega cap tech. Then you started to see smaller cap move, mid cap move, some industrials, materials move. And I think finally now you're seeing rates start to move. So I'm not surprised that you're seeing this knee jerk reaction in the short term. I just don't know that this is what's going to torpedo the rally uh, for good. You know, I think about the 10 year Treasury yield is now up year over year on a nominal basis. But if you look at real yields as an example, real yields are actually still decidedly negative on a year over year basis. And I think. A lot of investors would say that it's really the real yields driving the demand into stocks. So that hasn't necessarily changed yet. So I'd pay very close attention to that as we move through the next few weeks. That hasn't changed, except for today felt really bad. And and in terms of feeling bad, we saw even interest rate sensitive sectors to the upside not participating in the rally. And I'm thinking of financials for one, Tim, Mm -hmm. for a long time. They've been creeping higher along with the 10 year yield. It's been fine. It's been great. It's been better, better, better. And then, bam, no more. 
Yeah, I, I tweeted that out because, uh, you know, it's shocking. We, we would be rallying like crazy on banks. And I pointed out that I think banks have underperformed, especially if given all of this reopening hysteria. Um, I, I just want to, you know, the move today in bonds was not only the adult swim, but, but if you look at the seven-year auction in treasuries, and most people don't, <laughs> but it, it was catastrophic, okay? It was the worst auction ever in the seven-year history. Um, if you look at what it did, did to the, the middle part of the curve in that part of the day and effectively where we closed, uh, there are a lot of people that say, you know, the 10-year yield today uh, basically completed a bear trap and that you've essentially broken the downtrend of nine, uh, 19, uh, uh, basically, sorry, so from to 2020 from the preceding two years, uh, and you've effectively reversed rates, and that the technicals look horrible, and that you're actually selling any bounces from here. Um, so as someone that has said that I think normalized yields were 160 coming into this, and I wasn't going to be worried until then, the price action today, uh, and maybe so everyone else that was concerned for the last two weeks was right, um, but I, I, I will say that the price action today was nasty. Uh, very nasty. And, and the Fed's not helping anything by coming out there and saying, no problem with inflation. Nah, we're not worried at all. This is all great news. When we know the, the, the Fed does not control the long end of the curve. So, you know, that's the stuff that today, I think today was an extraordinary day in markets. So let's be clear. Uh, and it didn't feel very good. Yeah. Um, you got to be wondering if you are in the Fed, if you are Jerome Powell, perhaps, if you think, why doesn't the market believe us? Why don't they believe us when we say that we've got your back? Brian Kelly, what's going on here? Yeah. Well, maybe it's the 20 years of undershooting inflation that has the market gone, hmm, maybe these guys don't know what they're actually talking about, which is the camp that I'm in. I think the camp the guy's been in for a long time. But, you know, the, the Bullard coming out today and saying, I'm not worried about inflation when the CRB index is through the roof, when lumber is hitting all time highs, when you have supply chain issues, you have global stimulus, not just going into the financial markets, but actually going into people's pockets. Uh, you know, to me, strikes of just massive hubris that you think you can control this when you haven't been able to do uh, it for your Fed, entire but career. But Brian Kelly, the Fed has said, yeah, inflation will be temporary. It'll be uneven. And this is exactly what we expected. And we'd rather the economy run hot out of a pandemic than not get a recovery at all. So th this is this was in the plan. Right. It's all so according to plan. That's great. Then that tune. That tune will change as soon as the stock market's down 10%. And then they'll panic, and yields will be at 2%, and they'll come in and peg yields at 2%. That's what I've been saying for a long time. I think they're doing it again. But just for investors at home, we, can't, we don't want to get into too wonky of a Fed conversation. Rates rise for two reasons. One, because the economy's good, and two, because they're inflation. In my view, the first part of this rate rise was because of the reopening. And potentially today, what we saw was the tipping point into investors worrying about inflation. You guys are, are sounding pretty glum overall. Um, Guy, you know, I'm an investor sitting at home and <laughs> I see, you know, Tesla down 22 percent off highs. Apple down 16 percent. Facebook down 15. Amazon down 13 percent from recent highs. And I think this is it. It's my time to get in. What do you tell them? Yeah, they're probably going to wind up being right within a few percent of each of these names. I'm, I'm not suggesting, you know, Apple is going to crater or any of these names are going to crater. What we're trying to talk about here is a situation where something has fundamentally changed. So I tell them, make sure they have their shopping uh, list out, as we've talked about a number of times. What I'll also tell them is, Tim mentioned Adult Swim. You know, I know you're familiar with... Uh, 
You're familiar with the term scuba, correct? Self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. And now you're saying, where is he going with this? And I'll tell you where I'm going. You know, we talked about the fact that yields have been here before. Well, when you jump off the boat to go diving and you get down to a certain depth, in this case, you know, 50 basis points in August, you have to come up at a reasonable pace, right? You have to sort of go up slowly. If you don't go up slowly, if you go up too quickly, if something spooks you down there, Mm -hmm. like a moray eel, perhaps, or a tiger shark, and you come up too quickly, you get something called the bends. And the markets come up too quickly in terms of rates, and now the stock market is getting the bends. And I will tell you, not having had them, but having read about them, it's not a pleasant thing to go through. And that's what the market's dealing with right now. So are the bends, is it a temporary condition? Is it permanently debilitated? I mean, do you have long-lasting injuries from it? Tim, you're raising your hand. You know about this? <laughs> well, yeah, he's probably the only one on the panel that spent a night in a barometric pressure chamber because he thought probably. he had the bends after a bad <laughs> scuba accident. Um, you know, it's a case where uh, guys pointing out that there may be some elements of the market right now that, that appear to be uh, broken. And, and so what, what I would say about the move in yields is, is something that at some point, uh, think of also all of the pension and endowment and, and the funds around the world that, that actually were, were buying in mass uh, at the lows and, and all of the negative yielding. I mean, bond market investors have been destroyed in 2021. And, and so there's a lot of damage there. But I think the next piece of this that we're going to start talking about are credit, because Brian talked about inflation and he talked about, you know, potentially mm-hmm. also where there was growth. Um, but but yields also move based upon credit expectations. And, and I, I, you know, at some mm-hmm. point, um, we've thrown so much money at the problem, but there, there, there was a credit condition that we were talking about uh, very much so going into the year 2020 that concerned this big tranche of, of triple B minus and essentially uh, the triple B uh, you know, credit profile that are so many corporations that were on the edge. If you start to see uh, greater credit contagion, that's something else that equities haven't really priced in. Yep. Well, let's talk more about today's sell-off and bring in CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Steve, great to have you back on the show. Um, I feel like we've had this conversation many times over the past couple of months, probably starting in mid-January. We flagged the rise in interest rates and the trajectory at which they rose. And then we get promptly told that it's not a problem, that Fed Chair, you know, Jay Powell, this is all in the plan and it's going to take a lot for the Fed to move. Have things changed at all in your view at this point? Uh, Not from the Fed standpoint. They're Mm -hmm. kind of doubling down on it. And I'll explain what the Fed thinks, but I don't want those guys to throw stuff at me like it's what I believe. Okay, so I just want to be clear about this. The the way they see it, there's going to be two um, rounds of inflationary impulse uh, through the economy. The first round is going to be a uh, sort of falling out of base effects. In other words, we had uh, lower inflation before. That's going to fall out of the 12-month uh, comparison. That's going to be the first, the first round. The second round is through the reopening, and you'll have people coming back. And you have this massive dislocation in the economy, Melissa. For example, um, uh, people are the, the, the manufacturing sector is just sort of getting uh, up and running again. Global trade has been upset. So you can't get all the goods you need. People are going to come out of their shells, out of their homes, start to buy, uh, and you're going to see prices rise. The way Powell sees that, the way almost all members of the Fed I've spoken to uh, see that, is as a temporary phenomenon, not an inflationary process that Powell yesterday said will take years. I mean, I'm sort of generally still a believer in the idea of lower inflation 
The difference is this, Melissa. You talked about this issue of, of, you know, the Fed having your back. We're in a new world. When the Fed is looking for inflation above 2%, as one bond trader told me, it's like saying they don't have your back anymore. They're willing to let that real yield that you get erode in return for trying to get the job market back to where it was being down 10 million jobs where we are right now. Hey, Steve, it's BK, and, and I don't think you think like the Fed. We, we've talked about the Fed, and I know that uh, you're much smarter than that. But my question is, what about the stock market? Because what we've seen over the last couple of years is when the market does dip 10 or 15 percent, the stock market, all of a sudden the tune changes. Now, I know they won't publicly come out and say, oh, yeah, we want to support the stock market. But let's try it this way. How much do they factor in the wealth effect when it comes to their policy decisions these days? I think that's a piece of it. I think you're right about that, BK. I think that's a smart observation. The Fed's going to watch it. I don't think it's going to determine policy here. If there's a big sell-off either in bonds or in stocks, it's going to prompt the Fed to take some kind of action to have a more orderly uh, uh, distribution. But BK, I'm interested in this idea. I don't know. I picked it up years ago from Kernan, and he keeps talking about it. This idea when it comes to stocks of strong hands, you have a different environment where suddenly for some group of folks, you know, one and a half percent is an attractive yield. Um, but I also look at the mm-hmm. idea that if, if yields go to two percent, the real yield is still zero. You're telling me the stock market with the kind of boom that we're expected to have that's going to cause inflation can't prosper and do well with a two percent yield on the 10 year. If that's true, then I'm not sure you really have a confident view on the outlook for earnings uh, in corporate America. Yeah. Jeff, you were. No, um, I, I, go ahead, BK. I, I just to the contrary, I actually think at two percent, particularly if the Fed pegs it there, the stock market's going to boom. I just think it's this intermediate period. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Jeff, you're vigorously nodding your head to Steve's comment. Yeah. Yeah, I was. But it was exactly what I was talking about at the opening of the show, talking about real yields. And you think about the return expectations that a lot of institutional investors have and people just have in general. When you're talking about inflation rising along with yields and you have a a significantly negative yield, people are going to continue to be pushed into the stock market, especially if if earnings continue to recover and, and the economy continues to reopen. I want to go back to something that Tim said just really quickly relative to credit, because Um, I looked at an interesting analysis earlier this week just to put some numbers to this. So since 2008, we've had 10 sustained periods of rising interest rates. Only in two of those periods have we seen the S&P 500 PE compress. Now, the variable that was consistent in those two periods was, in fact, um, rising credit spreads. So as long as interest rates are rising and we see credit well behaved, um, that may actually be okay here. Does it matter what the context is for those periods of time, Jeff? No, the the periods of time actually varied quite a bit. Mm -hmm. There were some that lasted multiple quarters. There were some that lasted only a couple of months. But regardless, it was if rising rates were coincided with low credit spreads or even compressing credit spreads, we saw the P.E. in the S&P 500 continue to expand, kind of regardless where the P.E. was. Now, you could argue certainly that the P.E. is elevated right now, so there's not a lot of room to expand. But maybe you maintain the current level as investors continue to search for this return. You see a recovery in earnings. And that could propel the market higher. And regardless, we're going to be long. And I think if if you look back through history, it's the more defensive areas of the market. Maybe you throw technology in that now, just given the way.
way it's behaved over the past number of years. But dividend stocks, kind of fundamentally stable businesses, low beta, they generally face headwinds as interest rates are rising. So I would rather be in the more cyclical areas of the market still. Steve, I know that you wanted to inoculate yourself at the beginning by saying this is what the Fed thinks. What do you think? You've been on this beat for a long time, and I don't want you to go out on a limb in terms of predicting anything or anything like that. But what's your sense of what the situation is right now, given the context of coming out of the pandemic? Let me nod to what Tim said today, which okay. I think is really important. Um, I can have this sort of theoretical, academic, whatever you want to call it, view towards where yields are. But, but I think that the words Tim uh, m- might have used is this was ugly today, and it's been ugly how quickly it's risen. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, the auction was ugly. And that's significant. Um, I think the way we got there, you know, I can argue that 150, 200, 200 basis points on the 10-year is not a problem. But getting there the way we have is not a pretty way to get there, and it does create certain concerns about dislocation. I, I think it's going to be very difficult for the Fed to extricate itself from where it's at right now. And I think there's a train that's rolling. I don't think bond investors want to be in front of it. The Fed has attempted to do something novel here. And I, just give me a second, I'll explain yeah. it. The Fed has tried to divorce its quantitative easing policy and the criteria around ending and reducing that from the interest rate policy. That was the problem Bernanke had, or what Powell thinks Bernanke had back in 2013. Oh, you're, doing, you're ending QE? That means you're going to raise rates. The Fed has very deliberately tried to create a two-step process here to become the markets and say, you know what, we can end or reduce QE and not necessarily have you think we're going we're gonna to increase rates. I don't know if that's successful. It's a pretty clever idea. We'll see if the market and guys on your panel glom onto it and can believe the Fed can reduce QE later on this year in the face of very strong growth and not then think the Fed has an itchy, tri- itchy finger on the rate rise trigger. Yeah, I think that there's a little bit of uh, to to be seen in terms of the credibility uh, issue there, Steve. Thank you for joining us. It's always great to speak with you, Steve Steve Leeson. Pleasure. Um, I like how Steve used that word clever guy because it could have many meanings, the word clever. Clever meaning intelligent (laughs) or clever meaning too cute. What do you think? Yeah, no, look, let me... You know I admire Steve. I mean, he's brilliant. He breaks down this stuff better than anybody. And you know I'm not a fan of the Federal Reserve. doesn't mean I don't think they're well-intentioned. I just think they're somewhat misguided, and they're trying to serve the master in the form of the stock market. And, you know, you, they, they can't win playing that game. And, by the way, that's what I think they're playing. They shouldn't even – they shouldn't know where the S&P 500 is within 500 handles. That's just my view, but we'll see what happens. I think you bring up a good point. If they can sort of take the foot off the accelerator – while the economy is booming and nobody, you know, nobody catches that, you know, that's best case scenario. I just don't think that's going to happen. You know, and Steve mentioned the train kept rolling all night long. Great song by Aerosmith, by the way. Um, I think the train is about to get off the tracks for a bit and we'll see who puts it back on the rails. All right. Well, with yields sitting at their highest levels in a year, the question now is where are they headed from here? Let's go off the charts with Chris Verona, Strategus. Chris, what do you see? Well, I think what Tim talks about and Steve and BK is very true with bond yields. How do bond yields move? They move slowly, they move slowly, they move slowly, then they move suddenly. And today was a sudden move in bond yields. I want to show you a couple charts that I think give us some idea of where they may be going and more importantly, tell us what we can do in the equity market uh, as they get there. Um, Let's put a little game. It's called Then and Now. Uh, Let's look at what the market and what the macro indicators look like pre-COVID. On 1231.19, the S&P was 3,200. Today, it's 3,800. Brent oil was 66. Today, it's 68. Copper was 280. Today, it's 430. 
financials were 30 bucks today they're 33 even german 10 year yields are higher today than where they were pre covid what is not like the others us 10 year yields even at their high today we're still 30 basis points below where they were at the end of 2019 we think they're getting to where they belong and where all the other macro indicators suggest they should be 192% i don't think is out of the question uh, if we go to the second chart you know what really gets us there We've been really queuing off the last several months this ratio between copper and gold. Industrial metals versus precious metals tends to lead bond yields. This still says rates up from here. I recognize this move in the short term is probably aggressive. The TLT is very oversold. Bonds are very bond yields are very overbought. You can pause in the short term. I'd look to good support in the 130, 135 range. I think you're on your way ultimately to 2%. And what really stands out to me, this third chart we brought along. These are the 62 Wall Street economists who predict where bond yields should be at the end of 2021. Why is there no one or two people above 2%? The street has to move the forecast to the right side of the table here. There's only six above 175. The street is not prepared for what this means yet. And I think the forecast table reflects that. How do we play this? Well, I think what's interesting is as all this is going on, there's a couple of groups and a couple of stocks that are breaking out. We know how good the brokers have been. I want to show you Goldman Sachs. This is Goldman Sachs over the last 15 or 16 years. The stock's been dead money since 2005, 2006. It is breaking out of a huge base. It's overbought. It can come in here in the short term. Be a buyer of weakness. This is a major, major change here. I also think the improvement in the life insurance stocks is notable. I brought along MetLife, ticker MET. Another stock that has essentially been dead money for the better part of the last 15 or 16 years. This one has started to wake up as bond yields have gone higher. I think ultimately, if we're talking about 175, two, two and a quarter, 10 year yields, these are going to be the names that are ultimately going to be on the right side of this trade. And the market is trying to communicate something to us. These stocks have been dormant for 10 or 15 or 20 years. They're waking up here. And I think we ought to listen. By the way, Chris, you made a great call because going into this year, you said that rising rates and, and a sharply higher rate would be the surprise of the year. And, and maybe it's upon us already um, in terms of the financials that you picked out that could do well, even in this environment. It's, it's striking to me that it's not the banks that are more exposed or levered to rising rates. It's not the lenders, for instance. What do you see in the cards for them? You know, I think what's interesting is uh, a couple of days ago, we ran the 25 stocks that have the highest correlation to 10-year bond yields over the last 20 years. Those 25 names, all of them financials. And it's across a wide variety of groups. It's life insurance, it's brokers, it's banks. It's a lot of regional banks as well. And I would encourage all the viewers, go take a look at the long-term chart, the 10, 15, 20-year charts on the fifth thirds, on the PNCs, on the key groups. These are massive, massive breakouts. Are they overbought here? The whole market's overbought. Buy weakness, rates are saying these things are leaders in the months and quarters to come. All right. Chris, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Verone of Strategus. Guy was mentioning a shopping list. Should banks, Tim, be on people's shopping lists? Yeah, they have. And we, we talked about how today wasn't a day to get the response. And some of the chaos is, is part of it and the volatility. But but I, I still think net interest margins for banks are a big part of what people are buying or selling you know, on either side of that. So um, therefore, it, it's getting better for banks. And, and there's no question. Certain parts of the curve today actually flattened. 
Um, but if you look at overall where we are uh, in terms of the, the, the slope of the, of the yield curve, it's very bank friendly. Uh, again, I just get back to the fact that banks are, are now in a position to have more freedom or at least regu- less regulatory uh, targets on their back in terms of what they do with capital uh, and some of the limitations that were there, buybacks, dividends. Uh, and I think ultimately you have a case where banks didn't come into this run particularly expensive. In fact, on a relative basis, very, very cheap, uh, not only just to the S&P, of which banks can be, uh, but to themselves and to this part of the cycle, especially as we are reaccelerating. Look, the good news here is that this is good news. This is about a reopening trade. This is about an economy that's accelerating. And all the fears that have been expressed today, are, are, to me, are buried in the fact that the Fed has overstayed the party every single time since the last 12 years, since they started flooding the market with liquidity. Why won't they do it again today? Well, because 2018 was the only year the Fed tried to take money out of the market and look what happened then. And I think they're going to inevitably running into that. Are they running into that now? Um, they're clearly talking the other direction. I know they're fearful of that. All right, coming up, we're following all the after-hours earnings action for you. Salesforce and Virgin Galactic, both on the move. We'll bring the numbers and the trades. But first, game on. The GameStop trading frenzy playing out in a big way again today. So what is really driving all these wild moves? The answer might lie in the options market. We'll explain when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. The retail trader rebellion is back. GameStop, Cost, AMC, BlackBerry all on the move again today. Let's bring in Mike Coe. Mike saw some pretty big moves again today in the options market. So, Mike, what would you see? Yeah, so we were taking a look at GameStop, and we often talk about unusual volume. And, of course, when people go out and they buy calls, there is a potential impact on the stock price. And the reason for that is that if retail or institutional traders are buying call options from market makers, the market makers need to hedge. To do that, they go out and buy some measure of the stock relative to how much those options move. The tricky bit about this, though, is that if everybody is buying options and the market makers are only short those options, as the stock price rises, they need to buy more and more stock to maintain their hedge because the sensitivity of those options to movements in the stock price rises. If you take a look at the open interest in names like GameStop, you'll see that there are many strikes where there's 10,000 contracts, 20,000 contracts, in some cases, more than 30,000 contracts. And in many cases, the market makers are short those contracts. 30,000 contracts is the equivalent of 3 million shares. So as the stock starts migrating through those strikes, they need to buy more and more. The flip side is also true. As the stock falls, they need to start selling stock, basically, to maintain their hedges. And so this exacerbates the volatility. So what is propelling a lot of the volatility we're seeing? I think part of it is retail buying and selling of the stock. Part of it is buying and selling 
of the options, propelling market makers to hedge those bets. But part of it is also the fact that I believe market makers are net short these options. And so as the stock moves, they essentially are throwing gasoline on a fire exacerbating the volatility that we're seeing. So that makes a lot of sense because I, I saw a stat that the short, because obviously the short interest has gone down considerably since it was 140% of the shares outstanding. It's now at about 30%, which I believe is the lowest level in the stock since December of 2018. So it doesn't appear to be a short squeeze at this time that's powering this move higher. Guy, um, your thoughts on all this? If this was just short stock, GameStop would have never, in my opinion, gotten to $500, wherever it got to. This is much more than that. And I've said at least a dozen times that these guys and gals understand volatility and, and, and convexity and negative gamma better than the people that should understand it intuitively. So that's exactly right. And oh, by the way, on what is pretty benign day for the market, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the Dow's down marginally, cup whatever it is, a percent and a half. NASDAQ down a little bit more. We're still within earshot of the all-time highs. The VIX went from 20 to 31 today. That should not happen on a day like today, in my opinion. But it should happen because there's hidden risk in the market that only Mike Coe right now is pointing out. That's the real canary in the coal mine. Not people short stocks, but the negative gamma effects and people being short vol all over the place. Why? Because what we started at the top of the show, there's this misguided belief that the Federal Reserve has our back. Yeah. Dare I ask, Brian Kelly, I'll, I'll give this one to you. Um, we saw the market sell All off right. today in a, big, in a big way. And that week that GameStop went nuts and went to $483 a share, we also saw the Nasdaq decline. For the week, it was, it was down 3%, so even less than what we're seeing so far this week. But could there be a connection? Well, I mean, yes, there has been a connection. They, they called it de-risking, de-leveraging, uh, evening out your book. But similar like what Mike was talking about, if you're a hedge fund, a long, short hedge fund, and you're long, equity, you're long uh, uh, tech stocks, and let's say you're short GameStop or something like that. I know they're not as short as they used to be, but as your longs go down, you have to cut your shorts to balance your books. So, yeah, I do think there is a bit of a connection. It's probably looser than it was a few weeks ago, uh, but it's probably still there a bit. All right. Mike, thanks for all that. Mike Coe, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, calling all hodlers. Coinbase files to go public. Did this just give crypto clout or Bitcoin baller? BK will answer that question. But first, we're following all the after hours action. These earnings movers, Salesforce, Virgin Galactic on the move on results. We'll bring you the trades when fast money returns. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a double earnings alert for you. Check on shares of Salesforce and Virgin Galactic. They are both on the move in the after our session. Frank Collins crunching the numbers on Virgin Galactic. But we start with Josh Lipton with Salesforce's quarter. Josh. 
So, Melissa, check out that stock in the after hours. It is slipping here. And remember, it was already down about 15 percent off its most recent recent high, though. Heading into the print, it was up about 100 percent from the March low. As for the print beats on the bottom and top Q1 forecast above expectations, that 2022 forecast, though, was better than expected on the top, but below consensus on the bottom. Did catch up with Rishi Jaluria over D.A. Davidson. It's a, he thought it was a solid print. Guidance does call for little deceleration next year, though he says CRM, remember, does guide conservatively. Surprised by the pullback, he told me in the after hours, possibly due to the heightened expectations was his reasoning. Mark Benioff on the call here. CRM is more strategic, more relevant than ever, he says. Had an incredible year in quarter. The acquisition of Slack makes sense. Benioff saying the combination of products there is going to make sense and that he's going to build Slack into more of his products. And for much more on this, check out Mad Money. Tune in tonight. Kramer and Benioff. Good television. Melissa, back to you. Definitely. Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton, um, clearly software, one of those spaces, high valuation in an environment in which rates are rising. You see those stocks get hit really hard. Um, Jeff Mills, we saw the IGV, the software ETF, down almost 4% today. Yeah, and I think you're going to see those kind of knee-jerk reactions in areas where valuations have been high. But I I do agree that this was a pretty solid quarter for Salesforce. I think there's going to continue to be a lot of focus on the Slack acquisition. I mean, they paid close to $28 billion for it. And I think there are always questions about acquisitions of that size. I think about Facebook and Instagram, just as an example. But I think what Salesforce got in Slack is actually this intercompany connectivity tool. And I think that that's very powerful. You you talk about something that could actually disrupt email. So I think within the Salesforce ecosystem, that's something that's actually going to really positively impact the company over time. And from a valuation perspective, I mean, there aren't that many SaaS stocks that trade at eight times sales. Just as an example, I mean, think about Shopify, Paycom, go down the line. So um, from a valuation perspective, although certainly not you know, what you find in financials and other areas, I think for a SaaS company, you actually find some pretty decent value in Salesforce right here. Um, also from a price perspective, so about a month ago, it bounced right off the 200-day moving average at 213. The 200-day moving average is right at 222 right now. Uh, It's testing that as we speak, so I would pay attention to that level. Yeah, Tim? Look, the service and marketing cloud business is is extraordinary. Uh, The Slack acquisition, maybe they overpaid. uh, Absolutely the right one. And again, a platform where there's network effects for all of this. In fact, one of the things that's more of a a technical element of of owning the stock and and valuations is that there was a lot of dilution in the Slack acquisition. And I'm not sure that's been priced into margins and and cash flow estimates. So I I think there's a little bit of pressure on the stock over the next quarter or two to to kind of work that through. But uh, agree that this is clear been uh, the SaaS leader. Why wouldn't they continue to take leadership and should trade at a premium to peers? And they don't. All right. Let's round things out with Virgin Galactic. Shares are down 14 and a half percent so far in the after hours. Let's get to Frank Holland with the details. Frank. Hey there, Melissa. You said it all. Shares of Virgin Galactic not taking off, falling big after a loss that was actually in line with estimates. This is a pre-revenue company. Those revenue numbers just not meaningful, at least at this time. What is the lack of growth in their customer pipeline? The top tier of their customer pipeline, future astronauts, those are people who have paid up to 250000 to take a flight scheduled for 2021. That's the same at about 600. The One Small Step program, that was capped at 1000 by the company. Those are people that paid $1,000 uh, in a deposit for a future flight. So, of course, that is at only 1000 same as it was the previous quarter. Virgin Galactic announced its founder, Sir Richard Branson, would take the company's 
third flight that has not been announced yet. However, we do know when that second flight is at least scheduled for. That's for May of this year. The company says that second flight will have a revenue-generating payload from NASA. It's also planning another revenue-generating flight with the Italian Air Force. Virgin Galactic also announcing a number of executive additions, including a new CFO, a new head of aerospace, and a new VP of engineering, all effective March 1st. Again, shares of Virgin Galactic falling big after a loss that was in line with estimates. But you have to look at this year so far. The space company up big, up more than 51% year-to-date, Melissa. Back over to you. Frank, thank you. Frank Holland. Brian Kelly, I go to you. This is another stock which may fall hard with rising rates. Yeah, listen, and and it's going to be extremely volatile. This reminds me very much of Tesla in the early days when a lot of people couldn't envision a day when the majority of cars on the road would be electric vehicles, and they're starting to do that. So I look at space. It's pre-revenue. It probably shouldn't have gone public anyway, but it did. So here we are, and you have an opportunity because you have shorter-term investors that are looking into the next year and saying, ooh, it doesn't look that great. But if you think that space travel is going to be a part of the world, uh, commercial space travel is going to be a part of our world in five years, then I think you buy this dip and you buy it with both hands. Guys, is it going to be part of your world in five years? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know, I know. Yeah, I, think I know. You, I I mean, know you know the answer to these the questions. Answer. You ask them, you know the answer. I mean, we talked about rhetorical. There's the actual, I looked it up. There is an H. So, you know, it's, it's insulting to astronauts the same way if I said I'm getting on a plane next week makes me a, a, a future pilot. Uh, the same way, you know, getting on one of these Virgin Galactic things, these guys and gals are future astronauts. I mean, please, number one. Number two, um, as they said in James Bond movie years ago, uh, this stock is now attempting re-entry. Where does re-entry take place? Probably last February's high, around $36 or so. And just bring your barf bags because it's probably going to be a bit of a ride when we get there. So visual for you. Coming up, a rare green spot in today's Sea of Red. We'll tell you what gave Twitter its wings today. That trade and much more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money, a rare bright spot in today's Sea of Red. Check out Twitter flying to new highs of 3.7%. The company forecasting at its analyst day that it will reach 315 million daily users in double revenue by the end of 2023. Tim, I mean, this is really, talk about bucking the trend. Wow. Wow. I I mean, first of all, you don't have just folks, when you're playing this one at home, when a company announced an investor day, there's usually some good news. And and, and they they tend to sprinkle that good news into the analyst day and then deliver something. And that's what happened here. The doubling revenue from 3.7 billion to 7.5 billion by 2023 um, I mean, that's extraordinary. And I think the jury's still out. But but the, the focus on revenue is is everything the street wanted to hear. Um, yes, you know, d- monthly DAU growth of 20 percent uh, on average for the next four years. Also very, very important and part of how you get to that revenue doubling. Um, let's see how, how these new product initiatives work, because this is a company that has not been able to do that. Uh, like, I love Twitter uh, and I do think it's a great call. Uh, but I do think the stock's had a massive run uh, over the last you know, 45 Five days and you should be careful. Yeah. I mean, the question is, do you love Twitter here, Guy? Uh, yeah, I think we've all, Dan Nathan did a power pitch. I mean, I think we've all really spoken highly of Twitter and the acceleration coincides 
with some very interesting events over the last couple of months in terms of where the stock is. But traded almost three and a half times normal volume today. It's going to be a continued great story. I just think at these levels, given all the things we've talked about for the last 40 minutes, taking some money off the table on Twitter, which, again, we've all been really bullish on, is probably the right thing to do. Uh, given all the backdrops and given the amount of volume it traded. All right. By the way, don't miss Jim's interview with Twitter CFO Ned Siegel. That is at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Coming up, crypto platform Coinbase planning to go public via direct listing our own Bitcoin baller. Brian Kelly is going to break down what this could mean for the space. And as we head out, we're celebrating Black History Month by honoring some of our CNBC contributors. Here's New England Patriots Brandon Copeland with his advice for the next generation. My advice to the next generation of black Americans is to not wait for this information, but be proactive in seeking it out. Take ownership of your financial education so that you can change not only your life, but your family's life for the better. Oh, yeah, yeah. Baby. Nice. <laughs> you just killed that. Good job, buddy. Welcome back to Fast Money. Coinbase announcing plans to go public via direct listing today. The cryptocurrency exchange also announcing its revenue has more than doubled in the past year, bringing in more than $1.1 billion in 2020 as popular names such as Bitcoin and Ethereum have surged to record highs. Uh, Beeks, what do you make of this valuation? Well, it's interesting. So there's, there is a contract that doesn't trade for U.S. investors, but there is a contract that has been trading, tracing what the Coinbase valuation would be. And it's implying roughly when it starts trading, it would be a uh, $100 billion valuation, which is fairly eye-popping, frankly, because that would mean it is a bigger valuation than CME or ICE or something like that. So if that holds... It's, it's interesting. The second part of that, which I think is interesting, is you now can actually, if you look at some of the exchange coins, like a Binance or something like that, you can start to have a real-world traditional finance valuation start to creep into the crypto world. Here's the question, though, BK. Dollar for dollar, mm. Bitcoin or Coinbase? Oh, Bitcoin, without a doubt. Yeah. Jeff Mills, you... And, and here's the reason. Is uh-huh. that... Yeah, equities, equities are limited. Equities are limited on their valuations. Currencies are not. Jeff, would you agree? Yeah, I agree. I think if you want exposure to the space, you want to go into Bitcoin itself. And when I try to think about what the value of a coin should be, I mean, the supply is fixed, right? So you try to look at the demand side. I actually saw some interesting stats from ARK Invest just to try to try to game out what that might look like. And if you have 1% uh, of corporate balance sheets allocated to Bitcoin, the price doubles from here. If you have 1% of institutional investors' portfolios allocated to Bitcoin, the price doubles. If they allocate 2.5% of their portfolios, the price goes to 200000 So I think mm-hmm. trying to understand how all those dynamics play out, it's important. And those aren't large percentages in terms of allocations, but those are big price moves. Yep. Coming up, much more on today's sell-off, how, how you should position yourself for tomorrow's trading day. We've got your setup when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks selling off today with all the major indices closing in the red as rising rates and a steepening yield curve put some pressure, a lot of pressure on the broader market. So we want to know from our traders, what are you watching for tomorrow and anything on your shopping list? Guy, why don't you kick it off? 
Well, month end, so you could see some weird stuff in terms of window dressing. The three things I'll watch, other than the obvious, are the Russell, which was down 3.7% today, underperformed, obviously. Banks, do they get a bounce back? And obviously the VIX. The VIX is given, you know, we've seen over the last couple sell-offs, the VIX has come right back down to 21. Does the VIX hold up tomorrow? So those are the three things on my radar screen. Yeah. Tim? Well, you have to be looking at the bond market. So, you know, pick your part of the curve. Again, that's been the most distorted. I think, you know, we, we got a little bit wonky uh, on the show, the, the term we all like to use when when uh, negative gamma comes up. But but look at look at credit default swaps or look at CDS on on companies that, that are, are considered to at least have some credit concerns. Look at high yield, because, um, again, you haven't seen a major breakdown there, but those would be the uh, the signs for the next move lower. Uh, in the meantime, markets, you know, very close to all time highs. We were arguably overbought um, and the bond market's very much oversold at this point. Um, whether these are rallies to sell or not, uh, let's let the bond market, who always leads the way, decide. Yeah. Hence, back to the meme that we showed you at the top of the show. So we've gone full circle here. Jeff Mills, how about you? What's on your radar? <laughs> Look, I know this is cliche, but I think the best thing for most investors to do is nothing. I mean, take a breath. You get a lot of economic data tomorrow, PCE, other inflation readings. See what that looks like and continue to look at key relationships. You know, look at discretionary versus staples. Look at credit spreads. Uh, Verone mentioned gold uh, versus copper. And I'm going to be watching banks. I want to see how all of those things react to see if this is a, a sell-everything rally or you're going to continue to find relative value in some of those corners of the market. Yeah. BK, how about you? Yeah, for me, there's going to be really two things. And I, don't, I think we're in for a period of indigestion here. Um, you want to look for what the Fed speakers have to say. They haven't given us any hope yet, so it's probably going to take a little lower stock market. But then the second thing, and it's a little bit wonky, but you don't have to know anything about it. It's called convexity hedging. And when you hear those terms, that's generally when the rate sell-off is over. That's the last kind of step of it. We saw a little bit of it today. So just remember convexity hedging. You don't have to know anything else. All right. Up next, we got your final trades. Final trade time, Tim. Yeah, again, long-term trends at Twitter looking a lot better. You don't need to buy it short-term, but long-term be an investor. Jeff. There are other ways to play the space economy. Maxar Technologies is one of those ways. They have the best satellite imaging archive in the world. You can look at things like supply chains, global infrastructure. There's huge value in that data. I think the stock can go significantly higher. BK. You know, I'm not just on the show. I'm a user of the content. Guy Adami has been speaking about CME. Lo and behold, it's green today on a down day. I think you buy that tomorrow. Guy. I got a text last night from two of our viewers. They wanted to wish their mom a happy birthday. So on behalf of William and Kate Golub, happy birthday, Karen Feinerman, and your other twins as well. Oracle, up today. Back to you. Hope you're enjoying your annual chocolate, Karen. Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money's up next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.